sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the struggle against anti-abortion legislation in the state of Georgia. Also going to be having an update on the protests inside Panama. And we're going to be discussing whether the West is facing a contraction of power, a decline of power, and what all that means. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, the Zen Education Project reports that July 27th, 1919 was a Sunday and it was a hot one. That meant that the beaches of Lake Michigan in Chicago were the place for working people and their families to be. The beaches were segregated, though, not by any law on the books, but by custom. And that custom was enforced by the police. When a group of black men and women defied custom and tried to swim at the beach on 29th Street, they were driven off by a white mob throwing rocks. They returned with larger numbers. The white mob also grew. Meanwhile, unaware of the violence taking place by the 29th Street beach, five black teenagers were playing on a raft and floated toward that part of the lake. A white man on the shore George Stauber began throwing rocks at the boys on the raft. One of the teens, Eugene Williams, was hit in the head with a rock and drowned. The white police officer on duty at the beach, Daniel Callahan, refused to arrest Stauber. It wasn't uncommon for the ethnic white Irish police officers to ignore white on black crime in the city. But this time, black people had had enough. At least a thousand black Chicagoans assembled at the 29th Street Beach and demanded the police arrest Stauber for murder. They refused to arrest him. A black man named James Crawford reportedly opened fire on a group of police officers. Crawford was immediately shot and killed, but the crowd did not disperse and other black people began to attack white people. By nightfall, rumors of a race war in white neighborhoods were running rampant and the rioting began. And that rioting lasted almost a week. By the end of the first week of August, at least 38 people were dead, 23 black, 15 white, and over 500 were seriously wounded. Thousands of black homes were looted and damaged. Many were the targets of arson. This, the Chicago race riot, was one of the many instances of white violence against black people across the United States during the red summer of 1919 and one of the deadliest. White people in the U.S. increased their racial violence against black people after World War I as African-American soldiers returned from fighting in Europe, where they were often treated much better than they were in the country they fought for, and they refused to silently comply with racist abuse when they returned here. The racial violence of the Red Summer erupted in many southern locations as well as in the north, most notably in Chicago. Whites in northern cities violently responded to the migration of blacks from the South, who were ironically fleeing the racist violence in the South. The violence against black people in the South was an extension of the destruction of the political and legal gains won by African-Americans during Reconstruction. 
Along with the violence, African-Americans were denied voting rights and racial segregation was legalized, most notably in the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision Plessy v. Ferguson, which made racial segregation legal in the United States until 1954. The violence was just a way for the white population to maintain power by keeping black people in their place through sheer terrorism. Thousands of African-Americans were hanged, burned to death, shot to death, tortured, mutilated, and castrated by white mobs who almost never were prosecuted for their crimes. And all of these acts of racist domestic terrorism were horrific. But one incident is particularly relevant to the domestic terrorism being carried out today. On May 18, 1918, Hayes Turner was lynched. Turner was accused of being an accomplice in the killing of a notorious white farmer, Hampton Smith, who was well known for his abuse of black farm workers. Mr. Smith would bail black people accused of petty crimes out of jail and then force them to work off the fine at his farm. Smith was not an officer of the court in any way, but he was allowed to exploit black people accused of crimes in this way. Sidney Johnson, a black man working to pay a legal fee for rolling dice, confessed to killing Smith during a quarrel about being overworked. Police officers killed Johnson in a shootout, and when news reached the white community, Hayes Turner and other black farm workers who had previously been abused by Smith were accused of conspiracy to kill Smith and were hunted down by lynch mobs. The next day... May 19, 1918, Hayes Turner's wife, Mary Turner, was lynched. Mrs. Turner was eight months pregnant, but was lynched anyway because she spoke publicly against the lynching of her husband the day before. The white lynch mob bound Mrs. Turner's feet, hanged her upside down from a tree, threw gasoline on her, burned the clothes off her body. She was still alive when the mob took a large butcher's knife and cut the unborn baby from her body. When the baby fell from Mary Turner and lay crying on the ground, a member of the mob crushed the baby's head with his boot. The mob then riddled Mrs. Turner's body with hundreds of bullets, finally killing her. The Equal Justice Institute indicates that the grotesque slaughter of a black woman eight months pregnant reveals a great deal about the way in which black women were dehumanized with impunity in this country. EJI has documented 594 racial terror lynchings between 1877 and 1950 in the state of Georgia alone. Brooks County, Georgia, where the Hayes were lynched, had the third highest number of documented racial terror lynchings in this country. At least seven confirmed black individuals, including the Hayes, were lynched by the white mob in response to Hampton Smith's death, inflicting community-wide racial terror violence. No one was ever held accountable for any of those murders, not even the murder of Mary Turner or her unborn baby. 
The fact that the Republican legislature and judicial system in Georgia today are claiming to be protecting unborn life with legislation that criminalizes abortion based on the false recognition of a so-called fetal heartbeat before a fetus actually has a heart. But are the same people who do not want the history of their ancestors killing the unborn child of Mary Turner after it was violently ripped from her body and lay clearly alive and crying on the ground being taught in public schools, or the history of their ancestors assaulting and killing little black children in racist, terrorist violence across this country, or the history of their ancestors selling off the children of enslaved mothers and breaking up families for profit, that speaks to the true white supremacist patriarchal nature of these abortion bans. You see, these people never cared about our babies' lives. The only thing they have ever cared about is power. That is what these abortion bills are really about. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Atlanta-based organizer Monica Johnson. Monica, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Monica. And I'm glad we're able to have you on today because uh, Georgia's HB 481, or a so-called fetal heartbeat ban, um, has gone into effect. I mean, it seems like it was held up there for a minute, but the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade seems to have sort of given uh, this piece the momentum it needed to make it across the finish line. And I was hoping we could begin uh, by you sort of explaining Plan, what is the reality of what's inside HB 481 and how it stands to impact women inside of Georgia? Right. Well, uh, this is one of the first uh, laws to go into effect um, in the country, which, uh, you know, has a clause of fetal personhood. It says in this uh, law, um, I'm used to calling it a bill, but it's now law, that um, any unborn child uh, counts as a natural person with you know, rights with the ability to get civil uh, recourse for the supposed homicide of an unborn child, um, to count these fetuses as um, part of the population and uh, like census, um, as well as uh, judgments of child support um, for unborn children. So, um, you know, wide ranging effects, um, for the, the women, other people that can get pregnant in the state of Georgia, um, you know, very anti-science. There's no actual heart at six weeks just because there's electrical activity. Um, doesn't mean there's a heart, but um, the, the right wing, of course, has, uh, you know, taken this up and um, it has, you know, ran through this law um, in order to, you know, cre- create apparently a class of persons of unborn children. So. And, you know, the implications of this law are really wide ranging and pretty horrifying in, um, you know, classifying fetuses and embryos as natural persons. This means that 
women who carry those fetuses and embryos can be uh, charged criminally for all kinds of behavior that could be deemed harmful to the so-called natural person. So can you spell out what that would mean, just like in everyday uh, uh, language, of how women could be criminalized, you know, under this new bill? Or a law, rather, since it's now a law. Right. Uh, You know, they're very vague in the language of this bill about criminal prosecution, but they do say that um, health records will be available to district attorneys in the um, the jurisdictions in which um, a abortion is performed. And, uh, you know, they refer to an abortion as any, um, you know, any termination of a pregnancy. Um, They do carve out, you know, medical necessity, but we've already seen across the country cases of uh, women who uh, suffer from addiction, women who um, are in um, violent situations um, or in um, unstable environments being charged with um, homicide when, um, you know, the the conditions that create um, the, the problems in which, um, you know, maybe a woman might choose not to bring a child to term uh, because she knows that she's not in a safe, stable, healthy environment. You know, there's no there's no longer any um, ability to make that choice. And therefore, um, you know, they could be definitely civilly, uh, you know, come for and um, most likely prosecuted, although they're very vague um, on this because, you know, it's, referring to a fetus as a natural person, you know, let alone the rights, the, um, you know, safety, uh, the choices uh, someone may have to make because of the, um, you know, limited uh, choices that they have uh, financially, emotionally, et cetera. Um, so, you know, instead of protecting like the lives or doing anything to improve the lives of, of women in the state, uh, now um, they could be come after by, Baby daddies, they could become become after by uh, like other family members, most likely. Uh, it's just very vague as to like what could happen, and you know, it's just it's, it's, there's a lot of implications here. Yeah, and that vagueness, I think, very clearly opens the door for a lot of uh, out-and-out uh, dangerous things to happen, Monica. And uh, not to bury the lead, but you actually published a piece about this very issue on BreakingTheChainsMag.org, and I encourage people to uh, check it out. And within it, you make an interesting historical connection between what we're seeing in Georgia and issues of reproductive justice that go back literally to the time of uh, slavery in this country. So. Um, even though uh, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade has been a consistent project of the right wing in this country since about 1973, um, the sort of uh, underpinnings of it and the sort of class, race, uh, and gender dynamics therein uh, is one that goes back centuries. Definitely. I mean, you know, we have the history of um, enslaved, stolen women, you know, being classified um, you know, sold based on their fertility and, uh, you know, not being of value if um, they could not uh, bring a child into this world to, to labor um, for, for the enslavers. So, you know, at the same time as um, effectively a lot of the same relations um, are still in place of, um, 
you know, poverty wages, um, no protection on the job, no protection as a tenant, no protection from, um, you know, violence in general, you know, not strong. Obviously, the police rarely, if ever, um, prevent domestic violence situations. Over the summer, there have been um, several, like, you know, not really high profile because these things aren't really, uh, you know, pushed by the media as much, but killings of women uh, in domestic situations, you know, these violent murders, and a lot, like, I think eight times out of ten on these cases, the woman has reported um, being abused before. Um, and so there is no um, protection or no, um, you know, desire to uh, protect the life of a black woman, of the oppressed, a poor woman um, in this state. And, um, you know, now we're carving out a class of people that uh, these same oppressed women are the, uh, you know, now protectors of and now uh, can be held liable for the death of the death of something that never lived. So, um, you know, this the state, you know, also, of course, was one of the first to, um, you know, cut off the unemployment expansion during the pandemic, um, has refused to um, expand Medicaid, anything that would really, you know, protect um, the supposed right to, I guess, pursue happiness or any sort of uh, security in one's life. Um, there isn't that in the state. You know, you can't afford childcare. You can't afford food. Um, it's very difficult to qualify for welfare. Um, this is one of the, um, you know, like lowest um, income cutoffs for welfare in the nation. Um, you can't even get Medicaid for able-bodied um, individuals without children at all. And it's just, you know, uh, I continue to check on the working class, working women, and, you know, this, uh, like, blatant, um, you know, claim that the the main value of women or the main thing we want to protect is the possibility of creating another laborer for us that we can exploit. And as you point out in your piece, Monica, you know, the the uh, justices, uh, the far right lawmakers and judges in Georgia, uh, in the uh, state legislature and uh, throughout the courts, they actually passed this bill in 2019, long before the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So in 2019, this bill was actually unconstitutional and legislators in Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature passed it anyway. But what's been the response of the Democrats in challenging this legislation in Georgia? Have have you heard from the Democrats, particularly the the ones running for office in regard to their plans for responding to uh, the fallout for this legislation? And and what does the Democratic response uh, at the federal level mean for, you know, people who are having to live with the reality of this draconian law being passed every day in Georgia right now? As usual, there's, you know, mostly inaction on the part of Democrats. Uh, you know, you hear them say abortion is on the ballot in November. You hear them say, um, you know, if you don't vote blue, then, you know, this is what can happen. Of course, nationally, we've seen two failures to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. And of course, uh, you know, gets to fly under the radar that uh, Raphael Warnock, the senator, the Georgia senator that 
um, you know, won um, in the 2020 election, uh, what do you call it? He um, abstained from the vote in the Senate. So it, it failed to pass by three votes, and he was one of them. And, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars spent um, during that election season to say, um, you know, this is pretty much life or death. Uh, you know, to elect these two Democrats in, and we still have the same result. And we don't have any um, attempts to um, stymie the, the sort of um, usage or the, the uh, execution of this bill, or this law. We only really have them telling us to vote. Um, Stacey Abrams has come out, um, you know, attacking it and saying that she will protect the rights of women um, in the state. However, we have to, uh, you know, if she's elected, you know, but we have to look at the fact that, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams has not talked about um, helping working class people really any more than she's talked about raising the wages for the police. And so we know that the people that have to or that will, uh, you know, enforce this law will be the police. She has not said anything about um, raising the Georgia state minimum wage, which is five fifteen. Anything to make life easier for working class uh, people, women in the state. Um, but we do have, you know, apparently this this idea that just voting them in is going to work. Now, as of uh, the past, I think uh, forty eight hours, Planned Parenthood and some others have um, brought a lawsuit about this law. Um, so we'll see how that pans out, but. You know, we see a lot of equivocating. We see a lot of, uh, you know, saying we'll fund this or that. Um, but we are not really seeing any results when they are in office. Yeah. And on that note, uh, Monica, I mean, from what you're saying, as we've been seeing, I think really on just about every level um, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, this this lack of fight back from elected officials. And so I'm wondering what the, the fight back from the streets has looked like there in Georgia uh, ever since um, this decision came down. I mean, have we been seeing protests? You know, what what have, you know, the, the politics and slogans of that look like? It's how are the people responding to? to this attack? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, there have been uh, many protests um, popping off all the time, um, you know, bans off our bodies. People are, um, you know, talking about our autonomy um, as people and the ability to, um, you know, make the decisions about families um, that we may or may not want to, uh, to start. I will say that, you know, it also reflects on uh, the Democrats because you don't really see them out in any of these. Uh, you don't really see them responding with the people. It's kind of this, of course, separate, you know, kind of alienated response where they say they're going to do something and there hasn't been. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like definitely been left to the people um, to stand against this and to, um, you know, try to build a, a long-lasting fighting movement uh, that can overturn this and that will, uh, you know, prevent the enforcement of it. Um, you know, again, on the on the voting um, tips, there is, you know, this is a, also one of the states um, that have passed um, restrictive election laws, have gerrymandered the districts um, since 2020 and before um, in order to... Um, prevent um, vote progressive votes 
from uh, from passing or from uh, you know being more prominent. Um, and so it really shows that like we have to go outside of outside of what the system can offer in order to protect ourselves um, because there's just not you know any evidence that um, this um, vote blue no matter who is going to do anything for us. There have been individual um, officials like. Um, <clears throat> Fulton DA uh, Fonnie Willis has said uh, she won't prosecute abortions, et cetera. Um, and I believe the the cab, um, which is you know just east of Atlanta, um, DA Sherry Boston. Um, but both of those people have um, failed to prosecute police murders time and time again in this locale. And uh, you know, so protecting you know the lives of, of the people that are already living have not been the priority. And so, um, you know, the, the, the fight back movement is really the only way that we'll see change. Um, you know, these lawsuits, um, these uh, promises by elected officials, you know, may be a bit helpful, but more, um, more likely um, the, the sustained, you know, resistance of the people is what's going to make the change here. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Monica, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having an update on the protest happening inside Panama. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Zoe Pepper Cunningham, a journalist with People's Dispatch. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And Zoe, for almost a month, uh, the people of Panama have taken to the streets in massive protest around uh, different issues concerning their conditions and the economic situations inside the country uh, and also faced with a serious repression of those protests uh, from the right wing government of President Laurentino Cortizo. Um, but there has been uh, some developments uh, uh, within that and what appears to be some concerns made uh, by the government toward the protesters. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, just what is the latest with these protests in uh, in Panama, Zoe, and how things are unfolding from this point. Well, it's definitely an incredibly interesting and dynamic struggle that's happening right now in Panama. As you said, uh, people have been on the streets for almost a month now um, demanding a variety of things, but all really having to do with the increase in the cost of living, the impossibility to really survive with the current conditions without the government taking necessary measures to lower prices, um, to protect the Panamanian people from the global inflation crisis, and really uh, follow through on its word. Um, And there were a list of 32 demands that were raised way back in May um, by an alliance of social movements, of trade unions, of civil society organizations calling on the government to take very clear measures that would address this crisis, this pending crisis, which has since May only gotten worse. 
Um, and so they presented these demands to the government. The government refused refused to uh, address any of them. And essentially, on beginning on July 1st, uh, people have been taken to the streets. Massive road blockades have been erected across the country. Um, and this forced the government to sit down in dialogue with the organizations. Um, and now for the past week, there has been a united dialogue table with um, different uh, alliances and fronts that have been organizing these protests, these mobilizations, street blockades. Um, through this dialogue, they were able to negotiate on the freezing of the prices of items of basic uh, necessities, essential commodities for day-to-day life. Um, this was a huge victory by the movements that have been on the streets. And they rightly so decided that during these negotiations, during this dialogue, they would continue to mobilize because they know that, you know, it was only through this mobilization that they were able to win this victory. So the negotiations are continuing. And the organizations today uh, exactly have been denouncing the fact that the government has been trying to get uh, the business sector, uh, the the Chamber of Commerce, essentially a place in this dialogue table. And the people have said, no, uh, this is the same sector that has really been promoting the increase in prices that has been profiting from the misery of the people. So there's this is a, a struggle that's ongoing, it's dynamic, and they're still uh, fighting for many other demands. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, I, I'm interested in who made up this alliance uh, that was able to uh, get the government to agree to reduce the cost of essential commodities by 30 percent, because it, it seems that uh, in the People's Dispatch uh, piece that there were a lot of indigenous groups that were involved. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about who uh, organized these alliances and who are the people involved in uh creating this uh, momentous success? Well, that's a great question, and I think it, it, it's exactly why they have been so successful, because these different fronts and alliances have really had representation from all sectors of Panamanian society. This is a crisis that is affecting all of the people, and all of the different organizations involved have really made that clear that this is not the struggle of one organization or another, but it is the struggle of the people. Um, and so one of the alliances, the People United for Life Alliances, Alliance is a broad front with a lot of different trade unions. Um, the, the education, the education workers and teachers trade union has been a, a primary, uh, you know, mobilizer in this alliance. They, of course, are calling for the government to spend 6% of its GDP on education uh, denouncing the fact that education in the country has been severely underfunded. They're a huge part of this alliance. The Construction Workers Alliance, which is one of the uh, unions, sorry, which is one of the largest unions in the country, one of the most combative and radical. Um, they're extremely inspiring, and they actually paralyzed over 90% of construction work in Panama, which is one of the largest industries in the country. Um, they're part of this alliance. Um, and as you mentioned, Jackie, there's a lot of indigenous organizations that have been actively participating in these road blockades, um, both part of the People United for Life Alliance, there's different indigenous and peasant organizations, um, and then indigenous organizations in the Gabi Bouglé region. They are also on the streets blocking the highways hand-in-hand with the workers, with the teachers, with students. Um, it's incredibly inspiring, and it really shows 
the level of unity that's required in order to take uh, take forward these demands and take forward the struggle which affects all of society. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm wondering, uh, Zoe, particularly given the uh, class character of these protests and these groups that you just named that were a part of the leadership. I mean, what do you think movement people here in uh, the U.S. could learn not only from Panama, but from a lot of the struggles that uh, we've been seeing inside Latin America and, and elsewhere uh, around the world uh, for a while? We're talking about Ecuador, also protests happening in uh, uh, Puerto Rico. I feel like I often uh, hear and see people say, well, why don't the people of uh, the United States rise up like X or Y country? I think the truth is is that, you know, in all these situations, um, these things happen under their own time and, and circumstances. So it's not like, you know, conditions that we can force. But even still, I feel like there are a lot of lessons that we could pull from uh, uh, these uh, 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 movements, these demonstrations that I think would be good as we take a look around uh, uh, the United States and see uh, some of those same class elements uh, perhaps going through similar things. Definitely. I think there's so much we can learn from protests like what's happening in Panama, what's been happening across Latin America. Um, with the case of Panama, this has been, this is a product of mobilizing that's been going on for several years of building unity, of building these different alliances. Um, the Frena Eso, which is the National Front for the Defense of Economic and Social Rights, has really been playing a key role in bringing together, for example, this powerful trade union um, bringing that together with the peasant organizations. One of the really uh, remarkable things that's happened during the strike is that with the road blockades, this, of course, also affects the circulation of goods within the country. And so, for example, agricultural producers were facing difficulties um, being able to get their goods um, to the people, to the communities. Um, however, through this relation that they have with peasant communities, agricultural producers, and the people who are mobilizing on the streets, they were able to create an agreement for the circulation of goods, for those to be delivered to the communities. This is really about people looking within uh, the working class, looking within um, the people who are suffering from the same crisis. Of course, they're experiencing it in different ways. The people in the indigenous community have very different conditions that they're facing with this cost of living crisis than people in the urban setting. But they were able to come together under a unified list of demands of 32 demands that address the essential uh, crisis that's undergoing right now, coming together uh, to create these demands, to create a proposed solutions of how to take this forward. And I think the unity amongst those points of, uh, about what needs to be done, about the need uh, for the government to take action, respond to the needs of the people, um, is, is really key here and definitely a lesson that we need to take forward about the importance of building this unity, of building alliance around common points and around uh, real solutions uh, to this crisis, not something that's going to um, just be a Band-Aid solution. Yeah, and the fact that uh, people have been in the streets uh, since July 1st and they continue to mobilize even after uh, this uh, one demand is met, as, as you know, important as it was, there are other demands, as you mentioned. So what are the other demands that uh, people are continue to mobilize for uh, that they are, are seeking uh, a more movement on? Definitely. Um, it's, there's 
several different areas. So, um, for example, uh, the access to medicine is a very, very crucial demand of these sectors that are on the streets. Um, they have consistently denounced the existence of a pharmaceutical mafia in the country, which has, uh, you know, cut the, the supply of, of products in the country, which has raised the price to outrageous prices um, and has denied the people access to life-saving medicine and medical supplies. So this is one of the crucial demands, as I mentioned before, also the allocation of 6% of the GDP for the public education budget. This is a structural change, a change in the economy, a change that would have a lasting impact on public education system itself. Another crucial demand is ending of military agreements with the United States. Um, the U.S. Army has access to military bases within Panama. The people in Panama say that that's not, that shouldn't be so, and they do not want U.S. soldiers on their soil. Um, other elements have to do with combating corruption um, and the corruption of the ruling party. Um, electricity prices uh, and other and other key demands that have to do with this daily um, spending that the people are are facing on a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I don't think it's a, a coincidence when you mention the uh, presence of the U.S. military in Panama and um, the resistance to that by the people of that country. I mean, it seems like whenever we look at these uh, kinds of issues that, you know, U.S. imperialism or a kind of broader uh, history of colonialism is never really that uh, far behind in terms of the root causes of a lot of problems that we see in in different countries. I mean, I think Sri Lanka is uh, another one that we could add to that list among many. And, and that being the case, Zoe, I'm wondering how you situate the uh, uh, situation inside Panama right now with these uh, meetings and concessions uh, that we're seeing from the government, very positive development and ongoing uh, uh, struggles in the street, even uh, despite this. How do you situate uh, the Panama protests with other broader dynamics that we're seeing uh, in Latin America at this point, and, and particularly in terms of how um, imperialism is uh, uh, trying to scuttle or at least has a hand in uh, driving a lot of these efforts as well. Definitely. I think that something that's key is that in this moment, in these past couple of years, the people of the continent of Latin America and the Caribbean have said enough um, that they can no longer survive under new liberal economic order that has been imposed by blood and fire from the United States, from international financial institutions, um, through coups, through electoral fraud, uh, we see that the people of Honduras, the people of Colombia, the people of Chile, who took to the streets in massive protests where dozens of lives were lost, dozens of people who were killed by repressive forces that received training from the United States, um, they were on the streets and saying that they no longer would support this model of governance, this model of economic governance of this model of denying the fundamental rights of the people. Um, this is a model that is, of course, supported by the United States. The United States is a, has a hand in, in the electoral fraud in Honduras, in the different coups that happened across the continent. Um, but what we're seeing, what we saw with these protests, is that people said enough, and they were no longer going to tolerate this. And they realized, and they knew, I mean, of course, the people have known that they always do have the power, and that the power of them on the streets 
has been able to translate in several cases to winning electoral victories, to changing the consciousness of people who thought that there was no alternative. Um, and so it's, it's incredibly inspiring. And when the people realize the power that they have, uh, they're unstoppable. Absolutely. And as we're seeing uh, this movement, so like so many others that we just mentioned around the world, I mean, how do we take lessons from them in organizing here in ways that maybe we might not think of? What can we learn from them here uh, uh, to do better at organizing for the same kinds of things that other people are winning in places like Panama that we certainly need here, Zoe? Well, I think it's it's in Panama, they've been incredibly effective in identifying who are the actors behind all of these different ills that they're that are facing them, whether it's with the pharmaceutical monopoly, whether it's with the prices of essential goods. They've been identifying and calling out who are these people who are benefiting from our misery um, and how can we put pressure on these different areas of economic life in order to make the government listen to us. When the government said that they wouldn't listen to their demands and that these demands were ridiculous, instead of making concessions themselves, they said, okay, we're going to take to the streets and make them listen to us. So I think that relentlessness, that, can, that you know, uh, loyalty to, to the convictions, to the just demands of the people is so necessary to not give up in the face of adversity and to really double down and say, we're going to fight for this and they're going to listen. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the contraction and decline of the powerful West. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Professor Bonaventura de Sousa Santos, Emeritus Professor of Sociology, University of Coimbra in Portugal. His most recent book is Decolonizing the University, The Challenge of Deep Cognitive Justice. And he is the 2022 recipient of the France Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award. Professor Santos, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Professor. And, of course, if one takes a look at the state of things inside the the West, this, this conception of the West, right, and how things are trending for it at this moment, I think particularly around the uh, uh, ongoing war in Ukraine with a number of other issues, I think, happening on the international scene um, that I think are signaling some serious shifts uh, on the global stage, really in a way that maybe we haven't seen in some years. And you recently published a piece uh, about this entitled, The West is Experiencing a Contraction of Its Power, Not Necessarily Its Decline. And I was hoping you could describe uh, what you mean by this contraction and how we see it reverberating through the West at this juncture. Well, the contraction, uh, you know, is related to a, a prior expansion that is to say by the beginning of the 
uh, 20th century, I would say that 90% of the, the globe was either colonized or under the influence of what we call the West. The West meaning basically the capitalist states, um, Europe and uh, the US, North America, and all the other uh, possessions around the world. Well, as we begin the, the 21st century, uh, in fact, there has been a contraction, which is already visible in many ways. It was visible um, from the beginning of the 20th century with uh, the, the Russian Revolution and, uh, and then the Chinese Revolution, that is to say, laws of influence of capitalist states around the world. And then, in fact, what, what happened is that uh, um, when the, 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 the Berlin Wall came down, everybody thought that was a major expansion for the West. After all, the Soviet Union had been defeated, so to say, so that, that's the way the West constructed its victory. And therefore, from now on, as Fukuyama had said, the end of history and the West is basically uh, hegemonic in, in global terms if you accept uh, China. Well, uh, the reality is very different today. Well, it was already different then, but you know now it's more clear because when uh, uh, we are facing with options, uh, and particularly by the United States, uh, to see which are the countries that are with the West or against the West, um, in the aftermath of the Ukraine war, you can see that the West does not count for much because, after all, only 21% of the, the countries of the United Nations voted uh, affirmatively in favor of the sanctions against uh, Russia. Um, only 21%. And if we look at that population, it's no more than 15% of the world population. That means a very small part of the globe. So the contraction uh, can be seen either both physically and also politically and economically. So I think that this is the contraction that we are witnessing. And in fact, it has accelerated, so to say, with, with the, 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 the war in Ukraine. And then that comes to the question of, is this contraction that we're seeing of the West the same thing as a decline? Because we're, we often talk about how we are watching the decline of uh, the U.S. as an empire uh, specifically. But, but is this uh, contraction the same thing as a decline of the American empire? Well, in a sense, uh, one would say that no, we, well, they are different processes. And if we look at, uh, at uh, you know, what the global picture of what is going on, it, we have co contrasting images. For instance, militarily speaking, one can say that the hegemony of the United States is not in doubt in military terms. If we look at global financial capital, one would say that also the West is not in decline, right? But there are many other signs that are telling us the declining is there. Uh, and is there because of the countries are organizing themselves uh, to be rivals of the West hegemony and are doing that with great success. Uh, and I'm not just speaking about uh, uh, China or Russia. 
but I'm speaking about countries like India that was supposed to be on the side of the West all along, and all of a sudden is balancing to have a different relationship uh, from the one that has been prescribed by by the U.S. imperialism, in my view. So I think that the decline can be traced to this loss of influence in steering the politics of the world, um, as you are seeing now, uh, where we look at the people, the countries and the regions that are closest to the United States, like Europe, um, you know, are being defeated. I mean, the, the exchange rate of the euro is going down. See, this n does not predict victory of the Western side. Uh, uh, it predicts defeat. Uh, while uh, the ruble, while the yuan, the currencies of uh, Russia and China don't seem to be in trouble. On the contrary. So this is, uh, I think, that now we can see more decline than um, uh, ascent. Uh, what I'm thinking is decline will be a long process and probably a very violent process. Yeah, and I, I I tend to agree that it will likely be a violent process, Professor. And it's actually what I wanted to ask you about next in terms of um, the the social fallout, the sort of human toll uh, that this contraction you're describing takes. I feel like we're already seeing uh, some of those consequences play out right now, uh, certainly in the United States, as prices continue to rise and wages continue to stagnate and people see their conditions um, deteriorate more and more. But but I mean, what what is sort of the, the the human impact of these sort of contractions that we see as these major shifts continue to unfold? Well, you can see at very different uh, dimensions on one side. I, we know that we have a loss of lives in Ukraine, and that was uh, and it was unnecessary. I mean, uh, it was quite reasonable in my view uh, to keep Ukraine as a neutral country as it was before. And, uh, and if the Minsk agreements and uh, the security considerations of, the, of Russia were, were really taken into consideration, probably this loss of life would be avoided, of course. Secondly, we can see that the human toll with all the, 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 the commodities crisis, the, the grains crisis now all over the world, the hunger in, uh, in, in Africa and in many regions of the world as a result of the sanctions and of the collapse of the circulation of commodities due to the, the, the war. And thirdly, you can see not only in Europe, but also in the United States, the human toll in the United States is very interesting because, well, and dramatic in a sense, because the United States, have, since it's, uh, you know, almost its foundation, has been uh, claiming and trying to defend itself against external threats, external threats that are very far away, either in Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or now in Ukraine. But they are not prepared to confront internal threats. Uh, we have seen that in the pandemic. I mean, all of a sudden we have the pandemic and the, worst, the United States was one of the worst countries in dealing with the protection of life in a, a sanitary crisis like the one that we are uh, we have undergone in recently. So the internal threat we can see now with the United States uh, you know, boarding a situation of civil war, as it is now claimed by many people in the United States, the chaotic uh, 
destruction of lives in massacres by armed civilians in supermarkets, in schools. I mean, this is the internal deterioration of a country that claims to be defending democracies against the autocracy, but it is becoming an autocracy of a different type right now. And uh, we have seen the 6th of January was a good, uh, you know, alert in this direction. And you can see more and more that uh, a president that is conducting a war, usually because the war, in fact, is between uh, uh, the United States and and Russia and China, not because it's not be between Russia and Ukraine. While the president of Russia, his popularity increases because usually presidents uh, uh, gain in popularity in wars. Well, in the United States in the past, that was the case. But Joe Biden is going down in popularity as the, the war goes on. So there is a sense of internal deterioration as of implosion, of involution of the American society. And as a result, it's becoming more aggressive vis-a-vis -vis the outside because of the, the only industries that is still can command internationally on the industrial level, which are the destructive uh, uh, industries, the military industries. That's what as I see it now. Yeah, and as this is going on, as the United States is is trying to cling to its position of uh, a power in world domination by focusing on Russia and now turning its attention to China, what is the response in the rest of the world? The the there are other countries that are organizing in a way uh, that I don't think we've seen before. And and what do you think this means for what comes next in the issue of of the way the world is ordered? Well, uh, one could see at the superficial level, one could see that we are heading for a new non-aligned movement. That is to say, uh, there is uh, the Western side and there is the China uh, situation with Russia. And uh, in the middle, there are some countries like in 1955, when they uh, got together in, in Bandung, countries that would uh, uh, like to go their own way, neither socialist nor capitalist. That was the time now. Now, I don't see this non-alignment. What I see is that both China and Russia are, uh, you know, consolidating their alliances. They are powerful enough. They are rich in resources. And look at Europe. Europe, since the 16th century, Europe is benefiting from exploiting and, in fact, stealing the natural resources and energy from other countries because they don't have it. And all of a sudden, they embark in this senseless war uh, against Russia, against their own interests, against the interests of the Europeans, because now we are heading for the winter and with no energy, in fact, in the perspective to save us the, 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 the winter. So the other countries, the many countries in the world, in Africa, in Latin America and in Asia, are aligning themselves with the China-Russia bloc that is emerging, like the BRICS. The BRICS was uh, that first attempt of creating an international alternative to the hegemony of dollar, where the Brazil, with China, with Russia, with India, and South Africa. Now more peoples are coming in. Iran is coming in. Argentina is coming in. Other countries have also... Uh, you know, decided that they should get into this alliance. 
and the economic Asian alliance is becoming more and more powerful. So I think that we are going to have a world divided into globalization, so to say, into forms of globalization that are running in parallel, and then they are going to dispute which one is going to prevail. And my idea is that I don't see that the globalization led by the United States and by Europe has no conditions to succeed because, in fact, both in Latin America and in Africa, particularly in Africa, uh, we can see that the United States and Europe is losing all the influence. Uh, China is very well implanted. Russia is now, uh, Lavrov is now visiting Africa with great success. Latin America is a more complicated situation, uh, but, you know, uh, China is already very powerful as um, in economic relations with Argentina, Brazil, and other countries. So I think that we are heading for this rivalry, and this rivalry will have economic dimensions and military dimensions. Today is Ukraine, tomorrow will be Taiwan. It's, uh, I think we, we don't have to be a, a magic uh, a person to predict that uh, that will happen if nothing else happens in the meantime. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Professor Santos, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, July 27, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call. Never by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington. DC. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 a.m. in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. 
We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When uh, at the top of the hour today, the Federal Reserve uh, has just instituted a 75 basis point rate hike, uh, which is uh, the second large rate hike that we've seen in about as many months, which is actually unprecedented. And I think uh, stems and, and really sort of uh, evidences how serious the economic situation within uh, the U.S. is right now. And we definitely want to get into that uh, uh, deeper uh, sometime on the show. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Nino Brown, an organizer with the Boston Jericho Movement and the editor of the book Revolutionary Education, Theory and Practice, for socialist organizers. Nino, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Nino, I wanted to talk today about the politics of celebrity worship and influencer culture uh, in service to imperialism. And I really would like to sort of see that if we could through the lens of revolutionary education and all the different ways that uh, these politics and this kind of analysis just really helps us make better sense of what we're seeing around us. And also, I think, helps us, you know, speak more directly to the things that are of concern to the rank and file person in this country. And what I'm speaking of specifically is this major story in Vogue. That is a profile of Olena Zelenska, who was the first lady of Ukraine and, of course, the wife of uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky. And this is kind of fascinating to me for a few reasons. I mean, number one, I mean, they make it a point to sort of frame her as the heart of the Ukraine people. You have Zelensky as the head and the military leader and Olena Zelenska as the heart, uh, if you will. Um, and even within the article, they talk about Zelensky saying, quote, from the start, this war has been fought both on the ground and in, in the information space where Zelensky, savvy, telegenic, down to earth in his famous olive drab T-shirts, has expelled, excuse me, has excelled. Later, it talks about Olena saying she gives Ukraine, quote, a woman's face, a mother's face, an empathetic human face. If Zelensky leads a nation of civilians who overnight turned into combatants, she has visibly carried their emotional toll. And, and, and there's a lot to get into here. I want to stop right there for now. You know, one thing that I feel like I have to mention, because it hit me like a ton of bricks when Vogue pointed out about how Zelensky's always in this, um, you know, uh, olive green shirt, always very sort of uh, coming off as very sincere and uh, all these sorts of things. I mean, it almost remind me about how when Steve Jobs was living, you'd always see him in like the same like black long sleeve T-shirt, like tucked in a pair of jeans. Like, like it really dawned on me that Zelensky has really been packaged and sold uh, to the American people and the people of the West all out of an attempt to justify imperialism's role in instigating this. But without getting too, too deep into it, Nino, I'm generally curious about 
how you're sort of seeing this and the kind of impact that this could have on uh, uh, people's consciousness, really on mass consciousness, if we will, as we see U.S. imperialism continuing to, you know, uh, uh, frame uh, the Zelensky's in general and Ukraine in particular as, you know, these kind of uh, angelic, uh, faultless sorts of entities to further, I think, manipulate the American people into supporting uh, uh, the imperialist war drive? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, very disgusting, but uh, uh, predictable, you know, given the track record of U.S. imperialism all over the world, not just, you know, invading, destroying countries, but providing an ideological justification for their crimes, for, you know, painting themselves as humanitarian imperialists uh, and, you know, the war in Ukraine has now been going on since, what, February, at least, uh, according to the, you know, the, the Western media here, but we know it's been happening in 14. And part of that, you know, uh, continuation of that war is the need to create further justifications for why the United States is pouring billions of dollars into this uh, asinine struggle, right? So when we look at Vladimir Zelensky, we've seen that he's been packaged, as you, as you said, you know, he's made several appearances at all of these uh, uh, media appearances at the Granny Awards, uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, the Cannes Film Festival, right? Uh, he's palling around with uh, celebrities like Ben Stiller, Bono. Uh, he's, you know, on this PR tour where essentially his role is to continue to shore up that ideological justification for, for war, right? And I think what that indicates in terms of mass consciousness is that the, the, the United States needs to continue to prop up this war, right? Amidst massive inflation, uh, climate catastrophe with wildfires and floods, people's consciousness is going to shift towards the things that most directly impact them. And, but the United States government needs people to focus on their asinine war. So in order to get them to, in order to get the masses of people to refocus or at least give their tacit assent to support this war, uh, there needs this. There needs to be this continual ideological indoctrination. And the person of Zelensky uh, and his image and countenance is exactly that. You know, he's, a, he's a product. He's a package uh, of all this, you know, ideological justification. Um, but I think the fact that they continue to have to press him and his, like, his likeness and his, his image and sell him to us indicates that they're in a position of weakness, right, uh, in order to continue to shore up justifications for this war. And, you know, I, I feel like the fact that they posed uh, in vogue um, is the establishment in the United States using uh, uh, Zelensky's wife uh, to target women. Because I think that you know, the empire knows that the popularity, the support for this war is waning. There are cracks in the foundation, particularly as the economy in this country doesn't just falter, but is about to go in an absolute free fall. We just talked about how the Fed's, uh, the Fed has raised interest rates again, and this will not be the last time they do it to try to stave off this uh, uh, re recession that they're not going to be able to stave off. Um, inflation is getting worse. People are spending more in the grocery store for food at the 
gas tank for gas, um, at, for housing. All of these things are happening. Uh, this pressure building on regular working class and poor Americans. So I, I feel like uh, Zelensky's uh, a wife is being used as literally like the female voice to sell the war to women. And I think uh, uh, Tatiana, I think that's her name, uh, uh, Solove, a London-based former editor at Vogue Ukraine, basically admitted as much when she said the female voice in this war need to be heard, need to be represented. Uh, she said that Zelenska is the first to speak about the human experience of the war. And I, I just feel like that's wild because nobody posed for Vogue when uh, and was the female voice of Syrian women for war. You know what I mean? Nino, nobody posed for Vogue and was the female voice for Palestinian women. You, you know, no, no, nobody in the Horn of Africa, nobody in Somalia. So I, I feel like this is yet another a slick political ploy by uh, uh, the State Department to prop up now uh, Zelensky's wife the way they've propped up Zelensky to sell this war to uh, folks again, but now they're targeting women. And I, I just think it's 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 pretty obvious. But do you see people falling for it? I mean, I think people are, are going to fall for it less and less as the conditions get worse and worse for everyday working class people. And I think it's spot on in, you know, saying that they're using Zelensky's wife to uh, appeal to women. I mean, we've seen how the United States, I mean, oftentimes the United States is thought of as this uh, just, just hard structure, this hard power structure. But it's really more like an amoeba. You know, it can incorporate and co-opt different uh, identities, whether it's women, uh, black people, uh, queer people, and weaponize those things against the population. We've seen this with, you know, the war in uh, uh, in Syria, where the United States invaded Syria, and they used this young woman, Bana, uh, uh, this six- or seven-year-old girl, to claim that, you know, that the Syrian government was, was needing to be toppled by the United States. Right, in order to invade to save this six or seven year old little girl, uh, we've seen it with uh, uh, in Sudan, right, where celebrities are being used to essentially split Sudan into South Sudan and Sudan. Uh, so I think that you know over time people are getting more and more just depraved, more and more poor, more and more houseless. Uh, I mean, there's there's still a baby short, there's still a baby formula shortage in this country. Uh, the struggle of actual working class women in this country is only getting worse. And I think, you know, those material conditions, uh, I think they lead to more radical conclusions, you know, not always automatically. I think that's the role of, you know, us as, as uh, organizers and activists. But I think the, the conditions are there to really agitate against this because when you can't feed your children, when you are forced to carry pregnancies, when you are, you know, evicted at, astronomical rates like many black women, working class black women are in this country, right? You don't have time to really care about Vladimir Zelensky or his wife or the $54 billion that the United States is pumping into into this war. So I think it's, uh, the, t the tide is on our side. It's really just how do we continue to agitate amongst uh, working class people, particularly working class women who are bearing the brunt of this economic crisis more than many others.
That is definitely the question. And I agree with you that um, even as bad as things are, I do believe that the tide is on the side of uh, the people's movement. It's just a matter of how we as organizers intervene in it. And I also agree that as conditions continue to worsen and these social uh, contradictions continue to sharpen this uh, this rot that we talk about here and by any means necessary this uh, this uh, intensifying of social decay in the United States uh, will in fact continue and you know I was actually talking with a friend of mine all fair about this very issue this whole Vogue piece with um, uh, Zelensky's wife and he made an interesting comment he was like you know c- could you uh, imagine Bashar al-Assad uh, having uh, you know uh, being switched out for the Zelensky's in this, you know, big, huge profile in Vogue. And it's like, of course not. And and I actually laughed because once I thought about that, I immediately thought about the idea of, you know, uh, Muammar Gaddafi giving a, a, a speech in front of, you know, uh, the Oscars like Zelensky. I mean, when, when we look at Volodymyr Zelensky, I just I don't think we've actually seen a leader whose image has been so thoroughly and transparently, you know, laundered and uh, sort of put through the ringer of public relations to package and sell to the American people. Meanwhile, um, the, the, the leaders of the governments that U.S. imperialism deems as enemies get the complete opposite treatment. I feel like Bashar al-Assad is actually a good example because, at least to me, as a public persona, Assad is like not that compelling. But for the services of the United States, they have to portray him as, you know, this kind of dark sunglass wearing, brooding, uh, a violent kind of a wartime president, which is like the flip reverse of what we've seen uh, uh, with Zelensky. Right. And so in the United States, there's just there's this political theater that is such a core aspect of how things play out. And I think that this um, this 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 profile in vogue, this um, uh, uh, this raising of status with uh, uh, Ukraine that we've seen in both official and unofficial ways. I can't remember if that was um, was that NATO where they became like a, a formerly like an applicant. Stat- they had like a raise in their status. Yeah, I forget the actual name. It was a completely symbolic thing. But that's precisely my point. This idea that, uh, you know, it's playing out almost like a Broadway play or a reality TV show or something like that. There's just a very strange sort of Hollywood version of reality that um, our consciousness is pummeled with here in the U.S. that just doesn't square with the reality of people's conditions. And I I think you're right, Nino, that as things continue to worsen, I think those very kinds of contradictions will become more and more evident, thereby making the ground more and more fertile uh, to organize that kind of people's movement, you know? Um, The side example is is a really good example um i mean you know this is black mercy lensky who you know has banned the communist party in this country uh recently read an article on morningstar saying that uh you know the ukrainian government's launching a war on workers uh trying to get get rid of their uh, ability to collectively bargain right uh and this is all during a war so you know Zelensky has even more anti-worker, more pro, you know, imperialist, pro Nazi, all these things that, you know, American progressives generally reject. But 
somehow he's made into a saint, made into an angel. And it is very Hollywood-esque, right, because of all the all the things you said. But, you know, I think that Hollywood reality is going gonna to crack, right? Um, uh, I think uh, Jackie was saying before of how they're trying to use, you know, Zelensky's wife as uh, an appeal to women, right? And just given the state of the, the women's movement here, I think it's only a matter of time before those, those, two, those two things come to a head. Uh, I'm sure that the United States is sending out feelers to, sending out uh, uh, feelers to Mexico to see if they're able to get some baby formula, right? And this is supposed to be the richest country in the world, right? Uh, abortion was just banned in Georgia. I think that these, once these things begin to build up, I think of that same appeal to women is just going to fall on so many deaf ears that we're going to be in a radical situation. Yeah, definitely. And real quick, um, uh, what I was talking about earlier, it was the European Union that granted uh, the Ukraine candidate status, not NATO. Uh, this was back uh, during June. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Nino Brown. And you... (laughs) I have to say this because we were just talking about the uh, this Vogue profile of uh, Olena Zelenska, the wife of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And there's just this wild picture that's in there. It's like this obviously like computer like edited joint. It's like her in this long blue coat standing in front of what appears to be a downed airplane uh, with like the Ukraine flag uh, planted across it. According to the um, caption, she's at the Antonov Airport in Hostama with the group of female Ukrainian soldiers. And I got to say, Jackie, th- this is another aspect of things that I think we've been, been kind of um, touching on about how, you know, they're framing it as like so important that there be, you know, a woman that be the quote unquote face or the sort of emotional reference point of the Ukraine war. I mean, what else is that besides intersectional imperialism? You know what I mean? It's the same thing that was supposed to make us um, feel like we should vote for Hillary Clinton or like we should support uh, what's the name? Kamala Harris and all these things like this. It's that old uh, tactic of, you know, trying to get folks hung up on the the identity of the person without considering the actual politics of them and what their role actually means for a, a different aspects of, of politics that we see. You know what I mean? And so this is why I think the sort of um, the, the real, the class substance of these issues and uh, the real political substance of these issues and just who these images 
are for, right? Because we have to know that when we um, are given these images, it's not by accident. It's for a particular reason. And so having Alina Zelensky be portrayed to us in this way as this kind of appendage to, you know, the brave, I guess, like macho uh, military thrust of Ukraine just seems part and parcel of, you know, this broader rollout, frankly, of the war in Ukraine. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is really this whole Vogue thing is putting this high glossy stylized image on an imperialist proxy war. And and I'm talking about the United States backing the war, by the way, not not the you know people's claims that, oh, this is an imperialist war that Russia is fighting. I mean, so it, it is done in only a way that an imperialist nation as, that is as good at propaganda as the U.S. is would do. And I think it's really I don't know if ironic is even the right word, Nino, that that the U.S. is using and the EU and NATO are using these these finely honed skills of propaganda where they're pulling in now the high end fashion industry, because that's what Vogue represents. Right. The, the high end fashion industry, not just in this country, but around the world. And they're they're glossing up and and stylizing and putting designer clothes on this war, this imperialist proxy war in Ukraine that the U.S. and the EU and NATO are fighting using Ukraine against Russia. So these people that are being presented to us in these fancy designer duds, you know, uh, opposed so perfectly, they are literally complicit in the deaths of the unneeded deaths of so many Ukrainian people for the U.S. and NATO to get its way to, quote unquote, weaken Russia. And and I just feel like it's so ironic that they're doing this to prop up people who are literally defending fascists. They are harboring fascists. They are harboring neo-Nazis. They're using neo-Nazis in their army. They have used them against the people, the ethnic Russian people in Donbass. And it's just really weird that this whole propaganda thing that was, I guess, introduced and and, and as far as uh, the mass production of propaganda goes in Nazi Germany, I, look at how it just comes full circle to the U.S. empire using this slick propaganda to defend a bunch of neo-Nazi covering fascists in Ukraine, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think y'all raised really, really good points. I mean, the, the propaganda is meant to, to, to shape the hearts and minds and to really uh, to get us to believe that the United States is involved in this war for some just cause or some noble ends. But the real ends really are just to further expand NATO. And they can't come out and just say that, you know, we want to expand NATO and want to uh, take over, you know, to, to have to maintain our unipolar uh, hegemony of the world. So they have to create this justification uh, and they have to, uh, you know, use, like Sean was saying, whatever identity, right, they kind of reach into the grab bag and whatever comes out, they can... They try to use that to to win over different sections and layers of the population uh, to their war ends. And, you know, the, the aspects that you mentioned about uh, this being a proxy war, right? 
I mean, I see the same thing in how this of how the media apparatuses are essentially trying to, uh, or I'm not even trying to. I think they they do this very effectively. I mean, every single day in the New York Times, they say it's day 100, whatever, uh, of the Ukrainian war, right? We've never seen propaganda on this level, at least not in my lifetime. Uh, and, you know, we've lived through 9-11, the first Iraq war, uh, Afghanistan, Libya, and we've never seen propaganda on this level on such a day-in and day-out basis. But, you know, I think the fact that the propaganda is spreading and, you know, even just broadening to these high-end uh, magazines like Vogue, I mean, to me, indicates a weakness. The fact that they have to continue to propagandize and try to brainwash folks to supporting this war, to me, shows that this is actually not popular. It's not in the interest of Americans, they have to be constantly brainwashed to support it. Um, because, you know, as we, you know, I was I was in Howard University uh, a couple of months ago, and this brother told me, you know, what does the Ukrainian war have to do with black people, right? And, you know, we saw that uh, the, the, the Buffalo shooter took his inspiration from neo-Nazis in Ukraine, right? We have Africans, East Africans that are, uh, uh, facing higher uh, grain prices because of the war in Ukraine. You say that Africans in Ukraine are being mistreated. So the propaganda is meant to hide that reality uh, and to, you know, tap into our hearts and minds and make us feel uh, and not think critically about what the situation is at hand. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, speaking of feeling pressure to uh, uh, address things and that being a sign of weakness. I definitely tend to agree. And, you know, we were talking about NATO and I don't know if people saw this, but I think it was like a couple of weeks ago where the NATO Twitter account, they they made this tweet and um, it, it, the tweet says, quote, Russia continues to spread many false myths about NATO. So let us set the record straight. And there's this little animation that, you know, supposedly explains how Moscow is lying about NATO. Now, I found that very interesting. The fact that they felt the need to come out publicly on uh, one of their main social media platforms to talk about these quote unquote myths. I mean, I think regardless of uh, what one thinks about uh, Vladimir Putin or even the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what uh, uh, Vladimir Putin you know, has said in terms of the character of NATO and its designs, I think are objectively true. And the Russian government is not the only nor the first government to say these things about NATO by far. It is, in fact, a, a U.S. imperialist tool for control. And, you know, you know, what we've been discussing really is the celebritizing of Zelensky and his wife and how that's all folded into this push to justify the U.S. proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. But I feel like we see these same tendencies even within the movement, <clears throat> this tendency to celebritize individual people who may or may not even actually be organizers, mind you. The celebritizing of uh, individuals as the voices and faces of the movement and also the way that people operate this, you know, what's been called like influencer culture, like, you know, we're, we're supposed to be organizing a, a, a movement here, but we're not 
operating like organizers or operating like, you know, YouTubers and, and all these sorts of things. Now, let me be clear. As I've said before, you know, there are people who are on these platforms that, you know, are actually doing, actually, you know, good political education work and things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these situations where people may be, they may have political, you know, content in the stuff that they make, but it's not geared towards actually building a movement. All they're actually wanting to build is their own individual platform. You know what I mean? That that raises their profile and more to the point, you know, allows them, you know, to be able to line their pockets with, you know, ad dollars and things like that. And so I'm wondering how you see that element of things sort of uh, uh, impacting the movement. I feel like we see it a lot, particularly on uh, uh, social media and things like that, to where people will use, you know, uh, quote unquote, the movement sort of writ large and maybe even radical politics kind of as a launching pad for uh, uh, the raising of their own profile, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. I think, um, you know, it's unfortunate, um, but it's a, you know, aspect of neoliberal capitalism that exalts the individual, uh, exalts, you know, individualism and this kind of building yourself into a brand, you know, as, uh, you know, Jay-Z said, you know, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man, you know, meaning that he is literally a business. And I think this idea of, you know, turning yourself into an, a brand, uh, you know, it disempowers the idea of building any type of collective uh, unity, any type of collective consciousness or struggle, uh, because then you have not, you know, folks who are trying to find unity in struggle uh, and to move as one person, but everyone kind of doing their own thing. Right, everyone trying to, or folks who subscribe to this this uh, framework, just trying to show how much they know. And as revolutionaries and organizers, we know that it's not so much what you know, but how you can you know build collective knowledge in the streets and with regular people, right? So we can have uh, not just individual geniuses who you know know everything and can break things down, uh, you know, social media and, and uh, in this influencer style way, but how do we build actual movements where the the wisdom and the knowledge is actually embedded within you know communities of people, right? Not just individuals within groups within structures that can be passed down uh, to you know up and coming generations that are trying to make sense of the world. Because as long as we have this you know focus on the individual who you know uh, is a, the, the influencer and can, you know, move people and uh, uh, is supposed to know everything. I mean, it just negates our ability to have a continuous struggle and build continuity. Um, but, you know, I think it can be, you know, combated and defeated, and it has to be. I think uh, as an organizer, that's the role of political education and, and, and combating these things frontally, right? It's not uh, what you know, but how can you spread that knowledge amongst uh, everyday people such that, you know, it really stays in a continuous way. Yeah. And I think that's always the struggle that that I encounter when I'm I'm trying to talk to folks about these issues of capitalism and excuse me, <clears throat> imperialism, exploitation, you know, an international solidarity and that kind of thing. You know, how do 
we enter into conversations with everyday folks. Because I think that sometimes those of us who have been in movement circles, in uh, organizing work for a long time, especially those of us who are a little bit older, we're kind of stuck in our ways about how to engage with, you know, regular folks who are not revolutionary yet, who are not organizing yet. But we 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 hit them with all the heavy hitters. You know, we're we're quoting Cabral and and Sankara and and you know uh, actual you know telling people you need to read you know Asada and, and that kind of thing. And and you know people are just not at that level yet, and that frustrates a lot of us because people aren't where we are ideologically. But how do we get regular folks where we are ideologically, Nino? If we if we lack the revolutionary patience to walk people to that point. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, you know, people don't understand the entire system of capitalism uh, just all at once, right? People, they, they live their lives, they go to work, where they're exploited by a boss, they uh, live in apartment complexes that are owned by, you know, greedy landlords that are, you know, always increasing the rent. The rent never goes down. You know, they live in over-policed communities, and all of these things are particular experiences of the capitalist system that people know very well because they live it. And in my experience, the most effective way to reach people is to speak to their particular struggles, to go deep on their particular uh, oppressions and connect it to the general system of capitalism, you know, through scaffolded learning, through walking people through their own experiences and, you know, kind of summing up, well, out of this experience, out of this oppression, right, who is the class enemy? Who benefits, right? That's a question that I often pose in my organizing is who benefits from your rent going up? Who benefits from the police, uh, you know, being able to just act with wanton violence in the streets? Who benefits from your boss not giving you a, a coherent schedule such that you have to change your schedule around so many times and, you know, can't pick up your kids or just live your life in a regular way, right? Because uh, people, you know, they, they, they don't experience the capitalist system as all at once. They experience it in very particular ways. And, you know, uh, I think the points about Cabral and Asada and what have you, I think these are, you know, reference points that we try to introduce to people, but only through the process of struggle. I think oftentimes uh, we try to talk at people and not dialogue with them and, you know, really learn about what are they going through. And it takes a lot of patience, but I think uh, the lessons and the, the the potential gains, I think, are that much stronger because it's no longer, the reference point is no longer, you know, China or Russia or Cuba. The reference point is your own life. What have you actually lived through? What have you experienced? Uh, and how can you turn that living experience into a theory that's connected to other people in your community who are also oppressed and people who are oppressed all over the world. But you're absolutely right. It definitely takes a lot of patience, but I think it's, uh, uh, it's harder and it's unsexy, which is why, you know, it's not done as much. Yeah, I definitely tend to agree with that. I'm glad you raised this issue about how really most people don't 
uh, sort of understand all the contradictions or consequences of capitalism all at once because it doesn't impact them all at once. And this question of who, of who benefits is so important. I mean, Michael Parenti would say this all the time in his lectures, you know, QE Bono, who benefits? And I feel like that's so relevant because it grounds the question. It grounds the analysis in reality. And it can help people sort of understand the... Uh, how the system plays a role, not only in the issues that impact them, but how it impacts uh, things really at a class level and in a broader way. And it's fine if people don't understand all the, you know, ins and outs and machinations of the uh, 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 capitalist system right away, because guess what? None of us understood it all at once either. I mean, we all were in and continue to be in a state of learning and studying and being educated and learning how to educate as a part of this movement building process. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Nino Brown is here. And you know, switching gears a little bit, but still staying within this uh this this realm of uh popular culture, if you will. Um, the trailer for the sequel to Black Panther dropped. Marvel's Black Panther, which will be entitled Black Panther Wakanda Forever, dropped, uh, I think it was yesterday, if not the day before, that got 172 million views in 24 hours, which is one of the biggest in the history of the MCU to date. And it nearly doubled the 88 million views that the original Black Panther uh, teaser got back in 2017, which I think is saying a lot because there was an incredible amount of excitement around Black Panther from the time that it was uh, uh, first announced. Now, of course, people take a particular interest in the sequel to Black Panther, I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was a very, very popular film when it came out. Like I said, uh, you know, Black Panther was able to become, you know, an aspect of uh, the MCU. But of course, the major thing at this point is the fact that Chadwick Boseman, who played the T'Challa character in the movie, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, of course, has passed away from uh, medical issues. And so that was a serious question mark for people in terms of, you know, there was already a sequel planned. It, it, we already knew it was going to. Matter of fact, I think they literally tell you at the end of the first Black Panther movie that the Black Panther will return because Marvel likes to do that. It's like, yeah, we'll come with another one. You're going to spend some more money to see this. Okay. Believe you me. They tell you in advance. Right. And um, and so the uh, the trailer then was pretty interesting. I mean, you know, one gets the feeling that Wakanda is definitely reeling from the Black Panther's absence and appear to be under attack from none other than Namor, who's actually being played by a uh, a Mexican actor. And it's my understanding that the Atlantis of the MCU will actually be like Aztec 
uh, themed or have those kinds of motifs and, and imagery and things like that. And, you know, I, I feel like the last time we had you on, you know, we were talking about how, you know, as radicals and revolutionaries, sometimes we can feel very cynical about pop culture and kind of roll our eyes and, and are kind of like, well, why should we even care about this? But the fact of the matter is the masses of people in this country and in this system are concerned with it. And so I think it's good to not only be uh, aware of it, but be able to have that kind of analysis, to have that dialogue that you were talking about earlier that was important. So we're not just dumping things on people and telling them why they're stupid for wanting to see a, a superhero movie. You know what I mean? Because that's just not how we should be communicating with folks. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen uh, uh, the trailer, uh, Nino, or things like this, or if you have any thoughts, but I mean, even thinking back to the first Black Panther that <laughs> I'm still tripping over the, the you know, the involvement of the CIA agent that was in there, just completely shoehorned into the film. It didn't really serve any purpose, right? It was just kind of one of those very obvious moments where the intelligence community inserted themselves in Hollywood as they do. But I mean, when it comes to these conversations about um, these different aspects of uh, a pop culture, I mean, how do you how do you see as the appropriate way of grappling with this concept of, you know, meeting people where they are, but not, you know, leaving them where they're at? And while making it understood that there's actually like nothing wrong with just enjoying things like this, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I saw I saw the trailer. Um, you know, I saw the first film, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm definitely going to see the the second, the Wakanda Forever. I mean, for me, I always think that in order to criticize something, you really have to know it well. So that means I'm definitely going to see the movie and take notes, because in order to enter into the dialogue with you know friends, family, young people. You know, you want to be able to speak uh, intelligently about, you know, what what's happening in the film and how it actually connects to, uh, you know, imperialism, uh, capitalism, what have you. Because these are things that, you know, young people are going to, they're not just going to uh, automatically recognize. But, you know, I think what was interesting, most interesting about the, the trailer was the predominance of uh, the role of women in the whole, you know, in two minutes. We saw Angela Bassett. Uh, we saw uh, who were the other the other celebrities? Uh, Lupita uh, Nyong'o, Leticia uh, uh, Wright. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's the the the. It's a positive, but it's also like a, a double edged sword, right? Like it's great that you know there are women leads and in, in films in general. However, the double edged sword of it, the, the other side of it, is that uh, you know it's. It's another film that's, I mean, if it's anything like the first one where, you know, you have a CIA agent supporting an African country in its fight, a period, uh, I think, you know, you kind of get into murky territory. And I think that's kind of why you have to engage in the BS to be able to explain it. Um, so, you know, I plan on watching the film, uh, taking notes and being able to try to, you know, talk about the particular the particularities of the film, because to, to blanketly, you know, say like, don't watch the film, uh, it's useless, uh, it's propaganda, I mean, it's just going to fall on deaf ears. And it's just going to, you know, paint uh, us activists and organizers in a, in a, in a very, like, negative and just cynical and, and grumpy uh, light. Um, but yeah, definitely looking forward to to, to watching it so I can so I can actually engage in these conversations when they when they do happen, you know. 
the last thing I'll say is the last time the Black Panther uh, film came out, you know, I'm a member of the Jericho movement. And, you know, we took flyers into the film. And as people were coming out of the film, we said, hey, the Black Panther is fiction, but the Black Panther Party is real. And there are real Panthers who are in prison, you know, and taking advantage of that of that moment to, to you know, agitate among people. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you raised the point about, you know, that that always telling people that they should not engage in, you know, the consumption of pop culture in any way just kind of makes us look grumpy. And, and, and you know, I critique plenty of pop culture because honestly, I, I don't even know what's going on in, in, in a lot of music, what's considered music today. I still listen to, you know, 90s and early 2000s metal. I am still a metalhead. I still listen to punk and a whole lot of jazz and, and reggae. I don't know what's going on in my own musical taste. I turn on the radio and I'm just like, I don't even know what this is. What are they saying? I don't understand it, you know, so I have plenty of critique about the, you know, the, 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 the nod to black capitalism, the materialism, the consumerism and all that kind of stuff, the sexism. Yeah, there's plenty to critique in popular entertainment. But I think that when we're looking at something, the phenomenon that is something like Black Panther and any time and, and this sequel and any time it, it, it energizes a community of oppressed people the way it does, the way it has and the way this new movie will. I think it's our responsibility to be able to engage with those folks and recognize why the film gets people to respond the way it does. Because I think that in, 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 an, in an entertainment landscape, Sean, that is full of black people that does not really uplift what we could really call black culture. I think kind of the visuals and the African aesthetic and the unashamedly, you know, Africanness of Black Panther and this new movie is refreshing for black folks. And I think we have to we have to recognize that and affirm that that's probably what people are responding to the the lack of culture of of our actual culture in entertainment and they're thirsty for it right so they see it on, on the big screen and they're like dope this is great this is black culture and i think that's where we do step in nino and and remind people no this is entertainment this is propaganda and it's good and it's fun to watch, but this is not culture, and these are the reasons why. And I, and, and I think though, Nino, that that you're right that we can't have these conversations like online or stopping people at the movie theater and shaming them, you know, for dressing up in, in their Black Panther regalia as they're walking in, you, you know, and telling them you're being a fool for you know being so foolish and and making a big deal about this. But we do have to have. Uh, um, uh, 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 in-person kind of conversations with people after we've all seen the movie so that we can point out to folks where this movie, and I'm sure there will be plenty of places where this movie will uh, 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 present some really bad politics that can easily be reflected in everybody's everyday life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I used to teach fifth grade and um, 
you know, I know all my fifth graders, probably now sixth and seventh graders, are going to want to see the film. And I think that there are a lot of teachable moments in these films. There are a lot of times where the so-called fourth wall is broken or there's an awkward moment or even the moment, uh, you know, where the CIA agent, uh, you know, ends up somehow trying to work to, to save Wakanda, right? Um, I think these are all teachable moments, right? Not everything is education, but everything can be educational. And, you know, I, I agree a, a thousand percent what you're saying is that the film speaks to something within black people that excites them, right? So we have to figure out what is that thing, right? Uh, I mean, growing up, when people would call you, you know, so-called African booty scratchers and talk, you know, just uh, just to say so many negative things about Africa, to see, you know, Africa portrayed as, you know, just beautiful, civilized, what have you, even though, you know, Wakanda is fictional and it's, it's a monarchy, what have you. Uh, what it's speaking to is, you know, I think uh, a bit of just just self-worth, like people wanting to see black people shine and do amazing and, and be well, right? And I think our job is to say, well, how do we actually get there, right? Can we actually be Wakanda, right? It's not possible, right? It's obviously fiction. And I think our culture in this country has been a culture of resistance, of struggle, a uh, beautiful struggle. You know, the, the song, uh, No Woman, No Cry, you know, was in the background of the, of the, of the trailer, you know, Kendrick Lamar's, uh, We Gonna Be All Right, which was kind of like an anthem for the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. You know, it was also in the, in the backdrop of the song, of, of the, of the trailer. So I think that there are these teachable moments and these cracks that we have to, we gotta jump into the cracks. We gotta jump into the fissures and really try to figure out, like, what is it that is exciting people about this, particularly young people, right? And then turn that on its head. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I I wanted to swing back to what you were saying a moment ago about how, you know, women seem to really be playing a prominent role in this uh, next Black Panther film. Excuse me. I think that's definitely the case. I mean, in the trailer, we see uh, Angela Bassett as uh, T'Challa's mother, who was, you know, giving some uh, uh, kind of speech. Although I got to say, to this day, I still think she should have been cast as Storm in the X-Men. Thank you. And not Halle Berry. Never. I just feel like, because when I, when I think of, because I think of Storm in like the the X-Men animated series and Angela Bassett to me, like she looks like that. She sounds like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, you know, she's already got a role, whatever. So I don't know when the X-Men eventually come back, as we know they will. It'll be interesting to see who they pick. But the, the only reason I even bring this up is because we know that in certain arcs of the comics, his sister Shuri becomes the Black Panther. And if I had to take a guess about at least one of the plot points of the sequel, then I would argue that uh, we very well may see uh, uh, Shuri do that. And, you know, it's funny, like you made because that point you made was good, you know, about um, basically not coming off like, you know, a bunch of grumps that don't like anything. Although I honestly do think that. Some of us who browbeat people for liking anything in popular culture come off like we don't like nothing because some of us really don't like nothing. I I think some of us just get so caught up in study and the political work, which is important, but it's kind of like the humanity of it all kind of gets lost on some of us. You know what I mean? And that's actually, I think, a backward tendency because you have to have a kind of emotional intelligence 
to be an uh, effective organizer. You know what I mean? You have to be able to uh, uh, sit down with a person and talk with them about things that regular people want. Maybe they don't want to, um, you know, do a, a deep discussion about, you know, the second volume of Capital or whatever. That's fine. Maybe they'll get to a point where they do that. Maybe they won't. But uh, that ain't uh, really the point, uh, nor is it something that should should be a factor in terms of how our, uh, uh, you know, our own analysis of these things is playing out. I mean, it reminds me of when uh, Insecure was on. I mean, the, the show Insecure with Issa Rae on HBO. I mean, it was a it was a cultural sensation. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I personally feel like it was like not a good show. And it was just kind of about the wacky misadventures of upwardly mobile, you know, millennials in, in LA or whatever. I don't think it was that deep. I don't think it was terribly substantive. Certainly there are shows that were far worse, but people felt really deeply about it and felt like it was like a very, um, you know, substantive thing and even a kind of watershed moment for, for television. Now I, I disagree with that, but I did watch it. Uh, you know, to be able, you know, what I'm saying, to make just these kinds of uh, uh, analyses, and and again, just asking that question of, you know, why are we presented with these images as opposed to some other? You know what I mean? And I just feel like it all it all sort of factors into the way that we fundamentally understand the ins and out of how this system works, and what are the sort of cultural and ideological underpinnings of capitalist culture. I mean, Marx said that, you know, the dominant ideology of any society is that of its ruling class. Well, how is it that we can look at these, um, you know, different pop culture aspects, whether it's a Black Panther movie, whether it's, I don't know, a reality show, whether it's, you know, the Zelensky's doing a spread in Vogue. I mean, uh, uh, this all to me is kind of part and parcel of the broader cultural picture of, you will, of capitalist society in this moment. And I don't think, frankly, we'll be able to actually overturn this capitalist system if we just brush off the, the consequences of capitalist culture that we all live in every single day, mind you. So it, it's sort of like thinking that we can somehow separate ourselves from popular culture in capitalist society, to think that we can do that without separating ourselves from um, the people of our class who engage in it and who enjoy it and who see it in a certain way, I think is just to be uh, uh, unrealistic. But this is one of those things that, you know, uh, we'll continue to be able to grapple with. I certainly don't mean to make a huge deal out of this movie in particular, but just because it's something that I think is poised uh, to be really popular, probably quite successful at the box office if the, the first movie is of any indication. And like so many other things outside of that and outside the MCU, something that we should take into consideration as we seek to dialogue with our people and our class. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Nino Brown, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.